0: Well, that's what August is about. Dream, dream big. Look at pictures, and hopefully, you do have some time off you can take with your family and do a little road trip. And that's what we're talking about today in uh, in our in our uh, series today. Hope you have your note sheets. Keep your Bibles open. Through our series uh, in the Psalms this summer, we've been taking one Psalm at a, at a time. This week and next, though, we're going to look at 15 Psalms. Uh, be afraid. It's the special grouping we talked about at the beginning, the Psalms of Ascent. It's Psalm 120 through 134. And the reason they're called the Psalms of Ascent, uh, and I mentioned this earlier as well, is that these Psalms were prayed and sung by the worshipers who were making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which they did at least annually. They'd go to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is built in and around mountains. And so just about anywhere you lived in Israel, when you went to Jerusalem, you went up. Songs of ascent. You were going up. It's like when Janice and I lived in New England. We would visit uh, the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Well, uh, whenever you go to New Hampshire, you're going up. And that's what, uh, what these worshipers were experiencing as well. And what we need to observe about these psalms is there's a specific order that they come in. The uh, the Psalms of Ascent begin with the pilgrim as far away from Jerusalem as as could be. And with each psalm, he or she is getting closer and closer and closer. And by the time we come to the last psalm, the worshiper is standing right in the heart of the temple, filled with the joy of of being in God's presence. So seeing how uh, the editors of the psalms put it together is pretty cool in and of itself. But what is even more special is when you realize why God put these, these, these chapters in the Bible in the order he did. It's not just about physical geography. It's about spiritual geography. These Psalms describe what we might call the upward call of Christ. They describe beautifully the pilgrimage of the heart. It's the story of a person who begins far from God and they're suffering for it who then comes to their senses, they repent, and then they run all out to Jesus. And then they choose to live all out for Jesus. I think uh, that today people are desperate for a higher call on their lives. COVID-19 has exposed a lot of emptiness in the American way of life. It's knocked out so many of the idols that our culture worships. It's forced people to reevaluate what their lives are, are really for. I wonder how much of the politicking and the protesting and the agitation that we're seeing in society all around us, I wonder how much uh, of this is not a response to injustice, but is a response to boredom. It's a cry for meaning. It's, it's a yearning for a life that's, that's meant to be for more than just video games and sports and entertainment and, and pleasure. It's the realization that I'm more than a passive consumer. And here comes this terrible event that we all witness, and it summons so many people to a cause to stand up for, a reason to get off the couch. Well, biblical Christianity has given to the world this higher call from the very beginning. Those who who should least be bothered by boredom, our followers of Jesus Christ. And, and the songs of ascent beautifully describe the full span of a life from beginning to end that is in pursuit of God. And so looking at the big picture of the spiritual pilgrimage we're going to take this week and next, we can identify four st- stages in our spiritual journey. We're going to cover two this morning and the last two next week. Just to give you a flyover, the four stages are, are this. First, we're going to talk about faith awakening. And then we're going to talk about faith saving. Then next week, we're going to talk about faith working and faith growing. That's the roadmap that the Psalms of Ascent give us. And so let's, uh, let's begin the journey. Let's open up our roadmap. You got your GPS open to Psalm 120. This is an important psalm because it sets the whole journey in motion. So we're going to spend a little time taking this one apart. The writer says, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What more shall be given to you and done for you, you deceitful tongue, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing, uh, glowing coals of the broom tree? Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I, uh, I, I am for peace, but when I speak, they're for war. Some of you are going, huh? Let's take this apart. It's really exciting when you see what's going on here. This is describing how faith awakens in a soul. And this person is far, far removed from God. And and because they're so far from God, there are a number of things that are true from them. The psalm describes four of them. I want you to jot these down. First of all, a person that is far from God will experience and feel great distress in life. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And usually these words or something similar are the first words that come out of a person who is speaking to God for the first time. When they first understand how lost they are without Him. We humans are are really, when you get down to it, we are basically selfish, short-sighted little creatures. Do you know that? Turn to your neighbor right now, do this at home, and say you know, you're a selfish, short-sighted little creature. And then say back in return, thank you for speaking truth to me. Because it is true. I won't do the thing that is good for me because it's good. I'll do the thing that's good for me because I've exhausted every other option. I've done all the selfish and short-sighted things that I thought would work, and now I've made such a mess of things, I have no other choice. There's one thing left on my list. I can't believe it's come to this. I'll try God. Very rarely do people come to Jesus because it's the wise thing to do or out of fullness. No, we come out of emptiness or we come out of desperation or sorrow or shame. It's the tale of a thousand uh, stories and movies that we've seen. The hero's journey always begins with their life crashing and burning in some way. And then they grow. Alexander Hamilton, to refer back to the musical. How many of you have seen it? Just so I know. Oh, wow. Wow. That's amazing. Well, Alexander Hamilton would never have found his destiny without what? Remember? A hurricane that destroys his island. But you see, with God, this is okay. God would rather we come to him, however it is that we get there, than not come. Jesus cried out, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. All of you who are distressed, come to me, Jesus says. Can pain be good for us? I see one head nodding. Has pain ever been good in your life? Yes, and psychologists call it a bias for action. Pain gives us a bias to change things. Without the pain, we'll keep on doing what we're doing. So it's one of the reasons I have no doubt, and I've said this before, that I believe that God is allowing COVID-19. He used calamity like this all the time with Israel back in the Old Testament. We could find you lots of examples in the book of Amos. God says to Israel, they've turned their backs on God one more time, Yet again, and God says to to Israel through Amos, he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. What's God saying there? I gave you cleanness of teeth that he sent them all dentists. What did he send them? A famine. The reason their teeth are clean is they've had no food to eat. He says, I have also withheld the rain from you. He sent What? Drought. I struck you with blight and mildew, your olive trees the locusts devoured. I sent among you a pestilence. That's COVID-19. A pestilence, a plague, a pandemic. You say, why would God do that? God's mean. No. God's incredibly loving. He knows that if we leave this earth without us being in a right relationship with him, that we will be lost forever. We'll have missed the whole point for our lives. The most important thing for a human being is that they find their maker. And so God allows us to experience distress so that we'll come to our senses, so that we'll discover truth, the truth that we're not nearly in as much control as we think we are, and we'll never find peace until we find God. Distress is good if it brings us to this place. A second thing that is true about a person in whom faith is awakening is this. They begin to que- begin to question the company that they're keeping. Write that down. And then look at verse 2. The writer says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about himself first, but he's also talking about the people that are all around him. The community that he lives in. There aren't any God-fearing people around as far as the eye can see, and this only adds to his distress. When life is miserable and falling apart, one of the baffling things that people do is they find people that are just as worse off as they are. You ever notice that? It's that old saying, misery loves loves company, and so an alcoholic will find a drinking buddy. The angry person will find a tribe on Facebook to vent their anger, and they become all the more angry. And that just drives the wound deeper. The pain won't stop until you start surrounding yourself with a different group of people. That's what the writer sees here. The third thing that is true of a person in whom faith is awakening is a growing awareness of how far they are away from God. Look at verses 3 and 4. What shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows and glowing coals of the broom tree. He's talking about judgment. He's starting to realize, oh my goodness, I'm at risk for judgment. Now, godless people have no concern whether or not they're pleasing God or not. and They could care less about facing judgment. That's not on their radar at all. Jesus said it would take the Holy Spirit to convict us of that. To convict us of our sin, it takes the Holy Spirit. To convict us of righteousness, how do I get right with God? The Holy Spirit has to show us that. And judgment. It takes the Holy Spirit to show us the dangerous and slippery road we're on. But as godliness starts to stir in the heart of a person, suddenly these things start to matter a great deal. We see this at the beginning of a classic book called Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you you have read or seen some version of Pilgrim's Progress? Most of you, and I'll bet most of you at home have as well. We are going to, get this, we are going to act out next week The opening scene from Pilgrim's Progress, right here, and you'll see it on TV as well. The opening scene, the premiere of the Bridgeway drama team. And at the very beginning, Pilgrim, that's the name, even before he becomes a Christian, is saddled with this this huge, massive burden of sin on his back. And worse, he's filled with this, this dread that if he doesn't find a way to get rid of this burden. That it will drag him into death and judgment. It would be good for us, my friends, and those of you watching at home, that we think more often about sin and about righteousness. How do we get right with God? And about judgment. Don't push those three things away. Make them traveling companions of your life because they'll speak truth to you that your soul needs to hear. Verse 5 reinforces the point even more. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshek, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. At first glance, it's like a throwaway verse. If you were reading this in your devotional, you go, okay, next verse. But this, this is where looking a little deeper has a payoff. If you look on a Bible map, you'd see that Meshach is a, is, a, is a town way north of Jerusalem, near the Black Sea. And you then see that Kedar was a region way south of Jerusalem, down near the Arabian Desert. It's like saying, if you want to be in Washington, D.C., woe to me that I live in New York City and that I dwell in Atlanta You think that the guy's confused, where he doesn't even know where he's living. He's not talking about physical geography. He's talking about spiritual geography. What he is saying is, I couldn't be any further away from God than I am right now. And in addition to this, there's one other thing that the writer senses in this psalm. A heart in whom faith is awakening will feel a longing inside their heart that their life was meant for better things. They'll feel this growing inside of them. My goodness, I wasn't meant for this. Verses 6 and 7. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they're for war. There's something stirring inside of him. There's a tug. There's a whisper. There's a call. That he needs to stop throwing his life down the drain. Stop living so recklessly and so foolishly. You weren't made for this. You're better than this. And there's ache and ache inside him to find out what, could that, what that thing might be. The upward journey to God begins in the way that Psalm 120 describes here. Jesus said in the Beatitudes that the journey to life is like this as well. How does the journey to life begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says. You have to be humble first and broken before God. And then what does he say? Blessed are those who mourn. You have to see your sin and feel great sorrow about it. And that's how you move forward in your life. And maybe that describes Some of you here this morning. Maybe that describes some of you that are watching from home right now. If so, what are we supposed to do about it? If this is the bad news, where's the good news? Well, thankfully, the rest of the Psalms of Ascent show us the good news. So let's let's continue on and see what they tell us. The next lesson is this. You have to leave your old life behind and seek God with other like-minded people. That's the lessons that come out of these next few psalms. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come? From where does my help come? What hills? Well, it's the hills around Jerusalem. He's still far away from Jerusalem. How many of you have ever been to the mountains? Gone to Shenandoah? Going to, you know? Isn't that something how you're miles away, but suddenly they start, they start raising up in the, in the background. That's what's happening to him, he's seeing the mountains. I lift up my eyes to the hills, he's getting closer. Pastor Don is gonna open up this, uh, this sermon to us in a couple weeks, gonna look specifically at Psalm 121. I encourage you, between now and then, to memorize this psalm, it's very short. But if you memorize this psalm, it will speak to your life over and over again. Then, then notice Psalm 122, notice where the pilgrim is now. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. He's closer yet. He's in the gates. And what you got to see about these three psalms is, is, is a pattern, a template for what to do if you want your life to become new. You have to leave your old life behind. The Bible calls this repentance. Whatever it is you are doing, Stop. John Maxwell says to us in developing the leader within us, when you are digging yourself into a hole, what's the first thing you have to do to get out of the hole? Put down the shovel. You've got to stop digging. And then run toward God. Most people at this stage in their lives don't know much about God. The writer of Psalm 121 said, He's my maker, that's all I know. There's a God and I'm not Him and I desperately need him. And so run to him and seek him. And then Psalm 122 says, don't do this alone. Surround yourself with people like yourself who are also seeking God and wanna know him better. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We gotta get godly people around us any way we can. This is one, I believe, one of the hardest parts about this whole COVID-19 season we've been in. It's pulled us apart from this face-to-face interaction that we desperately crave and need. It's, it's, it's a cruel thing. I'll bet you that a majority, let's say you all have a faith meter. This is your faith meter, hold, your, hold up your faith meter, and if it toggles to your left, that's empty. If it toggles to your right, that's full. Has COVID-19, let's start in the middle, where has COVID-19 taken your faith meter? Toward fullness or emptiness? (laughs) Yes? Well, of course it has. The Bible tells us that to be full of God, we need to be with each other. Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. And then the very next verse, addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You have to be together. We have to be worshiping together to be full. And all over the New Testament are, are, are all these verses calling us to do this. We call them the one another verses, teach one another, serve one another, encourage one another. We can't do this alone. There's a, there's a reason that Tom Hanks created Wilson. Why did Tom Hanks create Wilson? Because he had to. He needed a friend to survive. I think Zoom and WebEx are our Wilsons during COVID, yes? Nice to have in a pinch, but it'll sure be good when we can all get face-to-face again, yes? Give you a new way to look at that. It'll do in a pinch when we're lost on COVID island, but we can't go on and on endlessly like this. Psalm 122 does not say, I was glad when they said, let's get online, (laughs) That's not how it works. But I believe that if we seek God afresh, that our faith meter can get to full or move in the right direction if we ask God to help us. Long before there's a vaccine, long before we're all together again, let's seek God and ask him for wisdom and creativity to do just that, to learn to one another, one another. And it is a verb. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm gonna one another you. Let's do that. Faith is stirring to life. All of this that we're talking about up till now is faith awakening. It's stage one in the journey to eternal life. What's the next stage in the journey? Stage two is illustrated by Psalms 123 to 126. We'll call it faith saving. And what's the first thing you do at this stage? It's not complicated. You come to Jesus and you kneel before him. Psalm 123, verses 1 and 2, I lift up my eyes to you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. The psalm writer at last has entered Jerusalem, and you'd think they'd be looking around at the city. They've been trying so long to get here, gaping at the buildings, in the scenery, and the temple. But no, they get inside the city, and the first thing they realize is they need God. I lift up my eyes to you. If you want to be free, then you need to come to Jesus and acknowledge who He is, that He is your master, He is your Lord. He's the God who made you and the God who died for you. Come to me, Jesus said. Those of you who are weary and heavy laden, That proves that he's God. I can't say that as a pastor. I can't say to you guys, Lauren, Sarah, come to me, and I will give you rest. I can't say that. All I can do is point you to Jesus. Only God can say, come to me, and I'll give you rest. And Jesus said, come to me. I'll give you life. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Now, here's the thing. Many will not take this step. Many are not looking for a master. Many are, uh, a people in our world today are only looking for a little spiritual padding on their, on their lives. On the news the other day, I saw a story, a reporter interviewing a psychologist who was uh, uh, talking about how, how do we find proper work-life balance. How many of you have been struggling with finding a proper work-life balance? Well, the whole story was about, uh, about that. And, uh, you know, if that's what you're coming to Jesus for, And he will give you that, by the way. There's this thing called the Sabbath, just saying, and there's other tips. But if that's all you're coming to Jesus for, Jesus, can I get some best practices? You want a little spit and polish on your life? Forget about it. That's not what Christianity is all about. You don't need just a little splash of paint on your life, rearrange the furniture. You need the entire house of your life torn down to the foundation. You need everything ripped down so that Jesus can rebuild you, studs and wiring and all. We need to be born again, not spruced up again. We don't need a life coach. We need a Savior. Come to Him. The second thing you have to do to be saved is spelled out in the next psalm, Psalm 124. 24, having come to Christ, you then admit that you're powerless to save yourself. If you are to be saved, it is Christ who will save you, not you. Psalm 124, verse 1, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive. Hmm. See how these psalms just flow one after another? And what's this psalm saying to us? That if there is any any possible way that we could escape sin's power on our own, any way that we could get to heaven on our own, or get out of this mess on our own, then you know what? Jesus would have come, come with a clipboard, not a cross. Okay, everybody, get down on the floor. Give me 50 good deeds. Let's do this. But we can't save ourselves. Forgiveness, if we are to have it, must be a gift, not a reward. And if ever we're to live a new kind of life, or turn over a new leaf with our lives, then I need him on my side, right there beside me. Not only that, but living inside me through the Holy Spirit. On my own, I am powerless. So you come to Jesus and admit that. What happens next? The next psalm tells us, Psalm 125. Look at the first verse. Those who what? Trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Those who trust. Here's what you do, write this down. Through a decision of faith, believe that what Jesus did on that cross is true and is for you, and receive God's forgiveness. What do you do when someone offers you a gift? Rosanna, it's your birthday coming up in a, in a, in a couple of weeks, first of September. If I were to offer you a gift, say, Rosanna, this is a gift. What would Rosanna do? Would she reach for her wallet? Would she get out her checkbook? Well, she doesn't have one. She's How old are you? You don't have a checkbook yet, do you? Credit card? Good, good, good. What do you do when someone hands you a gift, and you know it's a gift, or you? What do you do? You receive it. You reach out your hands. That's what the Bible's saying for us to do with Jesus. John 1 12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gives the right to become the children of God. And if and if you're not a follower of Christ, and I'm probably preaching largely to the choir here, but I don't make that assumption. You're watching this online and you're not presently a follower of Christ, then this is how you become one. This is how you come home. This is where your journey to life begins. With a prayer where you believe and receive. You say words like this, and I want everybody here and you online just to repeat these words. And close your eyes right now. My Lord Jesus, say these words aloud. My Lord Jesus, My master, I'm powerless to save myself. I used to think I was in complete control. I can't even guarantee my next breath. A tiny virus can take me out. It's all grace. My life is a gift from you. And you gave me this gift to find you and to know you I believe, Jesus, you died for me. And I receive from you this gift of forgiveness. I receive this new life by faith. I trust you. And from here on out, if you give me the strength, and I know you will, I will follow you. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. This is how Jesus becomes your Lord, your Savior, your Master, your best friend. And if any of you prayed that prayer for real, here or, or watching at home, then I want, I want to know about it. I want you to let me know that you prayed that prayer and that you meant it. And we will do what we can to help you start your journey on the right foot. I want you to know that you're not alone. Now, if you are a Christian this morning, then these Psalms are of ascent, are reminding you how you became one. It's not because you're so good, but because Jesus is so good. Grace, not works. Faith, not goodness. You have life because of Jesus' death. Once you know that your sins are forgiven, once you know that you belong to Jesus now, you know that the Lord is on your side and your sin won't have the last laugh over you, do you know what will come flooding into your heart as a result of that? Joy. Joy is the birthright of every Christian. And Psalm 126 appropriately describes the overflowing joy that we experience when the Lord sa- saves us. Look at these words. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, and that's what he's doing with everyone who comes to him. He's restoring your fortune. He's rescuing you from brokenness and death and futility. He's, he's restoring you to life. We were like those who dream that our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. He's done great things. We are glad. If you've accepted Christ today, I want you to know that Jesus is celebrating. There's a party going on in heaven right now for you. Jesus said that there is more joy in heaven over one person who repents than over 99 who needs no repentance. I hope that, that you and I at Bridgeway we'll rediscover that joy and get to experience that joy more and more as we reach out into our community it's a joy though that sometimes we forget when we've uh, been on the journey of faith for very long there's two two stages to the journey of faith we have yet to cover next week we're going to talk about faith working and faith growing and and oftentimes we can get so busy with our working and so busy with our growing that we We lose our first love for Jesus, and our joy can grow cold, but thankfully it can be rekindled in a moment. Another of COVID's benefits, at least for us believers, is I believe the Lord is using this little virus to remind us of what a great salvation we have. He's bringing us back to basics, and one of those basics is the joy of salvation. David prayed, Lord, restore to me the joy of salvation. COVID's tried to steal a lot of things from us the last four and five months. But you know, can't steal this. It can't steal your joy in Jesus. So if you're finding that your joy in life right now is pretty minimal, then you know what that tells me? If COVID can't steal your joy in Jesus and you're not feeling a lot of joy in your life lately, you know what that says to me? you've been putting your joy in the wrong things. And maybe, just maybe, the Lord is using this season to prune us, and Jesus says he will do that, to prune us to make us more fruitful. Prune us of those lesser joys that we've so banked on and now they're gone, so that we can come and experience real joy again.